hi, this is Glenn Rawson. One of the most powerful ways to share history and heritage is by the telling of stories. We began sharing inspiring stories nearly 30 years ago. Each of those stories is true and was intended to inspire and strengthen faith. Over the years, those stories have reached millions around the world. This podcast is for you to listen, learn, and enjoy. There is so much good and beauty in the world that I get just a little bit annoyed with all those sour-faced pickle suckers who won't see it, can't see it, and all they want to do is find fault and criticize. There's beauty everywhere. Things that are uplifting and edifying, and it's not all in church. This story is about inspiring, very unlikely heroes, and I doubt that my daughter, Sharice, is watching tonight because she's the mother of four active children. But years ago, our family purchased a movie called The Little Mermaid. We loved it. We watched it over and over and over. How long ago was it? Well, we got it on VHS. However, as with all great shows, we soon knew the movie by heart and watched it less frequently. That is, except for one daughter, who was quite young at the time, our daughter, Cherise, our oldest daughter. That movie, for some reason, captured her imagination, and she found a hero in Ariel. Ariel was so pretty, and her voice so beautiful, and her prince was a prince indeed. One day, when mom said, you know, your hair in the water looks just like Ariel's, Cherise decided that she would grow it out as long and as pretty as Ariel. She even wanted to dye it red. Well, when Ariel captured the love of her prince, our daughter dreamed of her love and practiced batting her eyes like this. Her favorite scene in the movie, however, was when Ariel had rescued Eric from drowning. Do you remember? He was lying on the beach, kind of out of it, and Ariel was on a rock just offshore singing to him. You remember the scene? If you remember in that scene, Ariel raised herself up, and with her hair blowing in the wind and spray, she sang of being part of his world. Oh, she was beautiful. That scene was magnificent and captured Cherise's imagination. It filled her heart with love and inspiration, and she wanted to live that scene for herself. So she began to practice for her own moment like that. She learned all the moves and all the songs, and more importantly, she learned to sing until she sounded just like Ariel. One day, I came home from work and found Cherise sitting in her position on her ocean rock, Actually, it was the recliner, and she was singing her heart out to Eric along with Ariel. Now, I don't remember this, but my daughter says that I leaned over and touched my wife on the shoulder and said quietly, listen to her. She's getting so good. She sounds just as good as Ariel. Well, I didn't know it at the time, but Sharice overheard me. And according to her account later to me, her heart swelled. 
And from that moment on, Cherise believed she could sing. Oh, and she could sing. And sing she did. For years, Cherise and I traveled together. I would speak and she would sing. Her voice has touched so many people for good over the years. Now, Cherise has found her prince and she has babes of her own and lives a long ways away, and I seldom get to see her. But every so often, less frequent now that she's such a busy mom, but every so often my phone rings unexpectedly. I answer it, and it's her, singing. She hears a song on the radio that reminds her of me and calls me and sings it to me. The beauty of this a mermaid taught my daughter to sing, and she's been singing ever since. Indeed, my dear friends, notwithstanding all the negativity in the world, there is beauty all around and inspiration everywhere if we will but look. Next story. June 1st to me was a red-letter day and an answer to prayer. Here where I live in Utah, in the Temple, Ogden Temple District, the Ogden Temple opened up yesterday in Phase 3. Just as soon as I saw that announcement, I went online to get an appointment. To my pleasant surprise, the first eight days of endowment sessions were filled. Not the first eight endowment sessions, the first eight days of endowment sessions were filled only hours after the announcement. And I have no idea where it is now. Now, I was pleasantly surprised and gratified. In my mind, that was an evidence of the truth of this story that I teased you with this morning. Growing up on a cattle ranch in Idaho, Homegrown beef was an abundant part of our diet, and I love it to this day. Call me a sinner if you want, but I nothing better than a good steak. I remember as a boy that some of the beef, though, that we got was tougher than old saddle leather. I don't know how old I was, but one day I remember walking into the house and seeing my mother with this spiked steel mallet thing. She had a raw beefsteak sitting on the cutting board, and with that mallet, she was just a whopping on that steak, beating it for all she was worth. I remember wondering, Mom, what are you doing? She explained to me that she was tenderizing the meat to make it easier to eat. Well, I'm not sure at the time if I grasped the concept or even if I cared about what she was doing. All I could see was she said, I'm beating up this steak so I can improve its quality. I'm not also all that sure to this day that it really did help. Some of that beef was pretty tough, no matter how much my mother pounded on it. But my mother believed it worked, and so that was good enough for me. I was satisfied. So all those years that I lived at home, I remember my petite little mother, five foot two inches tall and barely a hundred pounds, pounding on beefsteaks in our house. 
you know I'm not talking about beefsteaks, am I? With the course of world events lately, I have observed a similar phenomenon spiritually going on around me. Family, friends, and acquaintances, you being beat up mercilessly by the afflictions and difficulties brought on by pandemics, world panics, and everything else. Pounded by the trials of life and beaten down. Some of your heads bow and the tears course freely down your cheeks. You are being tenderized. Their hearts are being broken and their spirits made contrite. They are being made into new creatures in Christ and prepared for something so much greater, the refining and sanctifying fire of the Spirit of God. For those of us right now, under the mortal affliction, the mortal mallet of affliction, being beaten until our hearts are tender, I say to you, hold on. Hold on if you can. There are better days ahead. The Lord's creations were meant to please the eye and gladden the heart. Remember that from the scripture? The Lord's creations are to please the eye and gladden the heart. I cannot number personally the number of times when the beauties of the earth have moved my soul in some of the deepest way. Well, there was a moment in time in our history when the grandeur of the Lord's creation stirred a certain poetic soul, and because of what she wrote, she has enriched all of our lives. It was the summer of 1893, when Professor Catherine Lee Bates, professor of literature at Wellesley College in Massachusetts, set out for Colorado to teach summer courses at the Colorado College. Now, along the way, Catherine stopped at Chicago in Chicago to visit the World's Fair. While she was there, she was particularly impressed by the displays of the fair and its hope for the future, particularly the white city that was there at the World Fair. Well, after visiting the fair, Catherine continued on across Kansas and arrived at her destination. She resumed her duties, and later Catherine wrote the following. She said, quote, one day, some of the other teachers and I decided to go on a trip to 14,000-foot Pikes Peak. We hired a prairie wagon. Near the top, we had to leave the wagon and go the rest of the way on mules. I was very tired, Catherine said, but when I saw the view, presumably from the top, she said, I felt great joy. All the wonder of America seemed displayed there with the sea-like expanse. It was then and there, she said, as I was looking out over the sea-like expanse of fertile country spreading away so far under those ample skies that the opening lines of the hymn floated into my mind. 
When we left Colorado Springs, the four stanzas were penciled in my notebook together with other memoranda in verse and prose of the trip. The Wellesley work soon absorbed time and attention again. The notebook was laid aside, and Catherine said, I do not remember paying heed to those verses until the second summer following, when I copied them out and sent them to the Congregationalist, a newspaper, where they first appeared in print July the 4th, 1895. She said the hymn attracted an unexpected amount of attention. It was almost at once set to music by Silas G. Pratt. Other tunes were written for the words, and so many requests came to me, Catherine said, with still increasing frequency, that in 1904 I rewrote it, trying to make the phraseology more simple and direct. End of quote. Ironically, Catherine was paid $5 for the first sale of her poem. Then, in a remarkable turn of events, someone took a tune that had been originally written by Samuel Ward that was titled Materna and married that tune to Catherine's poem. Samuel Ward and Catherine Lee Bates never met in this life. But out of their separate, individual, inspired genius came a hymn that has moved the hearts of millions in love for America. Those words, O oh, beautiful for spacious skies, for amber waves of grain, for purple mountain majesties above the fruited plain, America, America, God shed his grace on thee and crown thy good with brotherhood from sea to shining sea. O oh, beautiful for heroes proved in liberating strife who more than self their country loved and mercy more than life. America, America, may God thy gold refine till all success be nobleness and every gain divine. O oh, beautiful for patriot dream that sees beyond the years thine alabaster cities gleam undimmed by human tears. America, America, God mend thine every flaw. Confirm thy soul in self-control by liberty in law. It was in 1931 that the Star-Spangled Banner was voted by Congress as America's national anthem. There were many then and since who felt that another hymn, less militant, more hopeful, more tied to the brotherhood of man should have been the national anthem of the United States. That hymn was America the Beautiful, with its faith, prayer, and hopes for brotherhood, they thought it more fitting as a national anthem. 
Speaking of the success of her poem, Catherine Lee Bates later said that the hymn has gained in these 20-odd years such a hold as it has upon our people is clearly due to the fact that Americans are at heart idealists with a fundamental faith in human brotherhood. End of quote. I hope sometime soon you renew your hope in singing that hymn again. I wish all of America would break out in singing that hymn. Maybe it would soften some hardened hearts. Now, from our curriculum, come follow me. It was the late summer of 1831 when two missionaries were traveling through Illinois based on what the revelations had told them to do and stopped in the small town of Paris, Illinois to preach. One of those missionaries was particularly interesting as he testified of witnessing an angel and of actually seeing the plates of the Book of Mormon. I believe it was David Whitmer. Well, in that audience was a young schoolteacher named William. He heard what these two had to say and was convinced that their message was true. Well, the missionaries preached and then moved on towards their destination determined by revelation, which was Jackson County, Missouri. William couldn't leave until he closed down his school, and then immediately he left Paris and went after them. Along the way, William devoured the Book of Mormon that they'd left with him, and when he got to Jackson County, he even went on to interview the book's witnesses. Finally, William declared, I was bound as an honest man to acknowledge the truth and validity of the Book of Mormon, and that I had found the people of the Lord. End of quote. William was baptized. Then, October 25th, 1838-31, rather, William went east and met Joseph Smith in Hiram, Ohio. And as so many others had done before him, he asked Joseph for a revelation on his behalf. Joseph, of course, inquired of the Lord for William, and a revelation did come. William wrote it down just as Joseph dictated it. William said, This revelation brought great comfort to my heart, because it answered many questions which had been on my mind with uncertainty and anxiety. It was only later that we learned the miraculous significance of that revelation. William would later go on to tell of putting five questions to the Almighty in secret prayer. And before that revelation, he gave those questions to the Lord and told the Lord that if in that revelation those questions were answered, it would be a sign to William that Joseph Smith was indeed a prophet of God. The result of that test, William said, I now testify in the fear of God that every question which I had thus lodged in the ears of the Lord of Sabbath were answered to my full and entire satisfaction. 
I desire it for a testimony of Joseph's inspiration, and I, to this day, consider it to me an evidence which I cannot refute, end of quote. That revelation answering the five secret questions is known today as Doctrine and Covenants section 66, and that young schoolteacher was none other than William E. McClellan. Perhaps what is most compelling about this story is what comes after. By 1838, William E. McClellan was an embittered enemy of Joseph Smith and the Latter-day Saints. It was he, McClellan, who asked for permission to flog Joseph Smith when he was a prisoner in Liberty Jail. It was McClellan who, along with others, ransacked the home of Emma Smith, stealing such valuables as a horse and saddle. McClellan left the church, and he never came back. And yet, to his dying day, McClellan would affirm the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon and the validity of that revelation dictated by Joseph Smith, considering it, he said, as evidence of Joseph's prophetic calling, which I cannot refute, and yet William would die an enemy to the faith and to Joseph. This is a very interesting story to me because I've been there. There are many ways that followers of the Lord Jesus Christ search for means to express their love for him. Poetry, music, and art have been used as vehicles to express deep emotions and feelings for the Lord Jesus Christ. I have learned, at least when it comes to music, that what is most valued in our heart is what we write, sing, and create. Albert Heinrich Hoffman was a language professor and librarian at a university in Europe in the 1830s. He was part of a new generation of scholars at that time who saw value in preserving and studying the art and literature of common people. Story is told that as Hoffman was traveling in Cilicia, an area in Central Europe, I hope I pronounced it right, his purpose was to gather traditional songs of the region. That's why he was there, some of which had religious themes. He happened to hear a group of peasants singing a traditional folk song and was very much impressed. Hoffman copied down both the words and music from this oral recitation and published the song in a collection in 1842. The union of the traditional folk tune and words praising the Savior made a beautiful song and a way for those people to celebrate their beliefs and their faith. Very little was known of this mysterious song's origin. Even today, it's a mystery. There are stories and legends that attribute it to being sung by crusaders in the 12th century, German crusaders, but there is no historical fact to back that up. It's a legend. But it has been discovered that that song was published as early as 1677 in a German Roman Catholic hymn book. Who wrote it? Where did it come from? We don't know. In another part of Europe, a Danish 
sculptor was searching for just the right way to portray the Lord Jesus Christ in sculpture, a way that was different and broke the mold, if you will, from the way it was being done by sculptors of the time. So he was commissioned in 1819 to create a collection of statues of Christ and the Twelve Apostles for the renovation of a Lutheran church of Our Lady in Copenhagen, Denmark. The church had been damaged during the Napoleonic Wars. So the sculptor set to work. Drawings and clay models were originally used as he designed a sculpture of Christ. According to J.M. Thiel, the, the, the sculptor's biographer, the sculptor wrestled with his creation, with the way he wanted to portray the Savior. Tradition holds that he had two poses for the Savior, one with arms folded upon his chest and another with arms raised over his head. But something about that, according to the biographer, didn't seem and didn't set right with the sculptor. He expressed his frustration about that to one of his friends, who, with a desire to help, the friend outstretched his arms and asked what Thorvaldsen wanted to communicate with the design of the statue. As Bertel Thorvaldsen looked at his friend and contemplated an answer, he suddenly exclaimed, I have it now, and it shall be so. Thus, according to the biographer, the conception of the statue was nothing short of divine inspiration. The arms of the Savior were designed to reach out and welcome whoever looked at him. The statue was originally made of clay and then plaster. A final version of the statue, along with sculptures of the Twelve Apostles, were made of Carrera marble from Italy and placed in the Church of Our Lady in 1838. In Thorvaldsen's search to find the Savior, the statue became the crowning achievement of his life, and you know it today as the Christus. American scholar Richard Storrs Willis, who graduated from Yale University, spent six years studying music in Germany and searching while he was there for music which celebrated Christian beliefs. While he was there, he encountered a well-known, simple yet beautiful song about the Savior, the same one that had been discovered among the peasants by Hoffman. Willis returned to the United States in 1848, and through his efforts, three verses of that mysterious song were translated into English and published in church chorales and choir books in 1850. What is that mysterious tune, that mysterious song of unknown origins sung by peasants and brought to America? Fairest Lord Jesus, or sometimes titled Beautiful Savior. Fairest Lord Jesus, 
ruler of all nature. O thou of God and man the Son, thee will I cherish, thee will I honor, thou my soul's glory, joy, and crown. Thank you for listening. Many of the stories you heard today have been published and are archived at glenrossonstories.com. If you would like more information, you can communicate with us there. We will be back again with another podcast next week.